All right, Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. It is widely understood that the reformer Martin Luther was powerfully affected by his reading of the book of Romans. He once wrote, I believe this was an introduction to a commentary he wrote on Romans. He says, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It's impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Sadly, for all of his reading of Romans, Luther never tasted the importance of Paul's comments regarding the future of the nation of Israel. Luther wrote this as well. He said, For such ruthless wrath of God is sufficient evidence that they, the Jewish people, assuredly have erred and gone astray. Even a child can comprehend this. For one dare not regard God as so cruel that he would punish his own people so long, so terrible, so unmercifully. Therefore, this work of wrath is proof that the Jews, surely rejected by God, are no longer his people, and neither is he any longer their God. Is the nation of Israel no longer God's people? Well, let's let the Apostle Paul answer that for us. Romans eleven eleven. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The tense of the verb fall and its contrast with the verb translated stumble implies the idea of falling beyond recovery. And so a paraphrase of this would read, has, Israel, uh, or has the stumble caused Israel to fall beyond recovery? Certainly not. Paul is explaining how that Israel stumbled and fell on the stumbling block, which is a name for Jesus Christ. They refused to recognize and receive him as their promised Messiah and the Savior of the world. He just wasn't what they wanted or what they thought they needed. They stumbled over the person and work of Jesus Christ uh, because he, he defied all of their expectations. God thus interrupted his dealings with the nation of Israel and salvation has now come to the Gentiles. By Gentiles, he meant all the non-Jewish nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues anywhere on planet Earth during the current age in which we are living. We call this the church age. It spans the time between Israel's rejection of Jesus and Jesus' return to resurrect and rapture all the believers during this period. The church was a mystery not revealed in the Old Testament. It is to be kept distinct from the nation of Israel and the Gentiles. Sometimes you'll be reading a commentary by an old author and they'll talk about the church in the Old Testament. There was no church in the Old Testament. There was Israel in the Old Testament uh, they are making that error of confusing the church with Israel. They're making the same error that Martin Luther made, thinking that God has rejected and turned his back fully on Israel, uh, and it's just not true. So we're in the church age. We keep the church distinct from Gentiles, distinct from Israel, and you'll understand prophecy. Now, the gospel was being preached to everyone, and many Gentiles were getting saved. The saved Gentiles were receiving the fullness of, of the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
They were enjoying direct access to God's throne of grace and mercy. Saved Gentiles have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. It's enough to make an Israelite jealous. And so in verse 12, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now the word failure means to diminish. It's another way of saying that because of her fall, having rejected Jesus, Israel is currently diminished, or as we like to say, set aside. Now to anyone who thinks God is through with Israel as a distinct group, this verse demolishes that thought. Saved Jews and saved Gentiles were already enjoying fullness in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This verse is saying that one day, in the future, the nation of Israel will experience God's fullness as well. And so it presupposes Israel is treated separately and distinctly from Gentiles and from the church. And so Paul is saying, you know, because of Israel's fall, there's been this great riches spread out to the world of the gospel. So how much more when Israel comes back? And so Paul fully expected the nation of Israel to be restored. He says in verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify that ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Have you ever tried to provoke someone to jealousy by using someone else? It's not very cool. It's not good. God, however, is cool, if I can say that. Can I say that? Is God cool? I, he is. A result of ministering to Gentiles was that Jews were being provoked to jealousy and individual Jews were being saved. It didn't minimize God's love for the Gentiles. God wasn't just using the Gentiles. He was saving them and bringing them into a fullness of relationship with him, but it was making certain Israelites jealous. Now, Paul made it clear that his ministry to the Gentiles was ordained by God. He said he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and in his service, he magnified his ministry. He took it very seriously. Uh, Paul, of course, everywhere he went, he would try and go into the Jewish synagogue first. Even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, He'd go into an area and he'd find a synagogue because there he would have a ready audience, people who knew the scriptures, and he could reason and argue from the scriptures about Jesus being the promised Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Uh, and then once he got kicked out of the synagogue, then he would take the gospel to the Gentiles, having a little base of, of uh, Hebrew Christians that would help him and stuff. And so, But he took this all very seriously. He he, he wasn't a Jonah when it came to the Gentiles. Remember Jonah? God said, I've got a wonderful ministry for you, the original Harvest Crusade. It's going to be in the city of Nineveh. Just get down there and preach the gospel. And Jonah went the other way because he hated the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrians, and he didn't want them to get saved. And so Paul, you know, he, uh, he didn't have that attitude towards the Gentiles He'd go to the Jew, he'd preach the gospel, then he would go to the Gentile and he said, I magnify that ministry. It's a wonderful ministry. And so he's being carefully saying, look, I, God is making Jews jealous by saving Gentiles, but it's a significant ministry. It's not, it's not a side thing that God has going. It's, it's the main thing that's going on in this age. Now verse, uh, it also mentions there that uh, in verse 15, if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, 
what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The nation fell, it was diminished, and now we read they were cast away. Their fall is not final, so neither is their being cast away. Besides, in the same breath, Paul indicated that Israel will be accepted and be alive from the dead. And so you just can't anywhere say that Israel is, is gone or that God is done with Israel as a nation. What is this reconciling of the world? Well, it's a doctrine that the death of Jesus Christ has reconciled God to mankind, making us savable. The Moody Handbook of Theology defines reconciliation this way. It says, God removes the barrier of sin, producing peace that enables man to be saved. There are two parts to reconciliation. There's an objective aspect, and that is which man is reconciled to God prior to faith, and is rendered savable. God has to do something in order to just make the whole human race savable because of Adam's sin. And then the subjective aspect of reconciliation is that in which man is reconciled when he actually believes. God is the one who initiates reconciliation. It's been provided for the whole world and it becomes effective when it is received by personal faith. And so the Bible indicates that through the cross of Jesus Christ, which satisfies the holiness of God, God is reconciled to the world. And when individuals receive Christ as their Savior, they stand reconciled with God. Here's a homespun but informative way of understanding what it means. At first, God and man stood face to face with each other. Adam and God were in perfect fellowship. In sinning, Adam turned his back on God, as it were, and then God turned his back upon Adam. He drove him out of the garden. Jesus dying on the cross uh, in 2 Corinthians says made him to be sin for us. That satisfies the demands of God and made it possible for God to again turn his face towards man. Thus God has reconciled the world to himself and human beings are entreated by the gospel to turn from their sin, be saved, and when they do they enjoy face-to-face -face relationship provided uh, by Jesus Christ. And so that's the doctrine of reconciliation. Not too much argument among scholars about that. God provided it. Men uh, receive it. It makes men savable uh, by what Jesus did on the cross. And uh, those who uh, receive Christ are actually reconciled with God. Now, if something as wonderful as the gospel spreading out to the Gentile world resulted from Israel's rejection, how much greater will be the result of Israel's eventual restoration? That's Paul's point. He goes, hey, look at this great result from the fact that Israel rejected Jesus. Imagine when they receive him, what a tremendous, glorious revelation that's going to be. Now, Paul is a master at metaphor. The two he next employed were the lump and the branches. And so in verse 16, he says, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, the first fruit and the lump are describing dough, not fruit. I know that because in the Old Testament book of Numbers, God instructed Israel to take, and this is a quote, a cake from the first of your ground meal and present it as an offering. That's Numbers 15.20. After they entered the land of Canaan and then reaped their first wheat harvest, they did this. The offering was to be repeated each year at their harvest. And so this cake made from the first ground meal of the wheat harvest uh, in Numbers, and Paul says it was holy 
meaning it was set apart for God. They brought it, they made it, they gave it to God. It belonged to him. Uh, And Paul's point was that if that cake made from the first wheat harvested was set apart, then it represented that all the cakes made from the harvest are to be considered set apart to the Lord. Paul was not saying here that individual Jews are all automatically saved. That would contradict everything he has taught in Romans and elsewhere. He's saying that the nation of Israel belongs to him, that it is set apart for his purposes and use because of his covenants with Abraham and the other patriarchs who were like the first fruits. I, I think you'd say that Abraham was the first fruit, wasn't he? Because he was the, God said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. You're a pagan uh, Gentile idolater in the land of Ur. Uh, you're going to be the first Hebrew. You're, you're going to start a new nation through which I will bless the whole world. And so he was the first fruit. The patriarchs after him were the first fruits. And that makes the nation of Israel the lump. They remain set apart for the Lord, even though they are currently set aside. So all of these arguments are about the continuation of God's plan for Israel. And all he's saying is that Abraham was like the first fruits in your sacrifices, meaning the rest of the harvest was holy. It belonged to me. Just so Israel still belongs to me and I am still dealing with them. Now, the root of a tree, that's the source of the nutritious sap and juices that are necessary for its growth. If the root is sound and pure and vigorous, then we would expect the same of the branches. Abraham and the other patriarchs to whom God made unconditional promises are the root and Israel the branches. And so both of these metaphors establish that Israel is permanently set apart for God. Now, next, Paul expands on the root and the branches to try to describe what God is doing to and through Israel in the church age. And so he picks up on this metaphor, which goes first to prove that God's not through with Israel. And he says, now I'm going to adjust this metaphor a little bit uh, in uh, kind of a, uh, again, a homespun farm kind of a way so that you can understand what's happening. And so he says in verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, And you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Now, the branches broken off refer to unbelieving Jews. They remain the physical descendants of Abraham, but they're not his spiritual descendants. Part of God's promises to Abraham was that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed, not just Israel. And so here Gentiles are compared to a wild olive tree that was grafted into the root. And so God says, Israel, you know, Abraham, the patriarchs, all of my promises, that's like the root. That's like the trunk. And think of the nation of Israel and individual Jews within it <clears throat> as the branches. Now, some of the branches got broken off. Why? They rejected Jesus Christ through unbelief. And then he went out to the Gentiles and he says, they're like wild olive trees They were never really part of that root, but I've grafted them in. I've saved them and given them the same life that my people enjoyed and can enjoy. God hasn't uprooted Israel and planted a new tree in her place. That's another way of looking at this. People who talk about replacement theology, they say the church has replaced Israel, uh, or in years past it was called supersessionism because They say the church superseded uh, Israel. That's not true. Paul, Paul doesn't say God ripped out the stump and planted a new tree. 
He said, no, the root remains, the, the trunk remains, I've just grafted in new branches. And so Israel remains set apart, even though set aside, and Gentiles are grafted into the promises he made to Abraham. Verse 18, don't boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Gentiles are indebted to the nation of Israel. Salvation is of the Jews. We're latecomers. We should never, therefore, boast of any superiority to the Jews. Verse 19, you will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Don't be haughty then, but fear. So in, in verse 20, well said simply means it's true that branches were broken off so that Gentiles could be grafted in, but they weren't broken off for that purpose. God didn't set Israel aside because Gentiles were superior or so that Gentiles could totally replace Israel. There's, there should be uh, no boasting in this. No, Israel was broken off because of unbelief. And then Gentiles were offered the gospel without the need to first or afterward convert to Judaism. This is the story of the book of Acts, is it not? The gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to all the world. And so uh, this is, this is a, a, a very simple formula. Our response is faith, <clears throat> not a work. It has no merit. It is all by grace that we are saved. And so if you're understanding this, do you understand how ridiculous anti-Semitism is from a biblical standpoint? How I, this, this, of course, the whole Bible does, but this passage in particular absolutely cancels out the possibility of anti-Semitism because God says, no, Israel is my people. That's my nation. That's the root. And if anything, you Gentiles have been grafted into those promises. Uh, and, and so any form of anti-Semitism but especially in the name of Christianity or by those who profess to be Christians, it's, it's, total, it's totally sinful, of course, but it's absolutely unbiblical as well. I quoted Martin Luther at the beginning. I can't, you know, I can't fault those guys too much. I mean, I don't know what I would have thought in you know, whatever century that was when you know, it looked like God had totally rejected Israel. Yet at the same time, the words speak clearly for themselves. Has God cast them away? No. And so I would have just put that maybe on the shelf and said, hey, I, let's just reserve that for a later judgment or something like that. But anti-Semitism, bad, you know that, uh, but totally anti, uh, unbiblical as well. So in verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Now this sounds scary. And so let's think about it in context. Israel was the natural branches. Those Israelites who remained in unbelief who never believed in Christ, they were broken off. Gentile nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues are now grafted branches. The gospel has gone and is going out to them. Those who remain in unbelief will be broken off. And so I say this metaphor is about you as an individual only insofar as it pertains to your response to the gospel. You might say it's about salvation and not about sanctification. William MacDonald says, and I quote, it must be constantly borne in mind that Paul is not speaking of the church or of individual believers. He is speaking about the Gentiles as a group. Nothing can ever separate the body of Christ from the head and nothing can separate a believer from the love of God. 
And so any person in either group, Jew or Gentile, may believe and be saved, or they may remain in unbelief and be lost. Keep that in mind as we read the next few verses. Verse 22 says, Therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Who were those who fell? The nation of Israel in their rejection of Jesus. God's severe discipline upon them resulted in his goodness being shown to all Gentile nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues of the earth. What about this warning, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off? Is this teaching that I, as an individual believer, must continue in goodness or I will forfeit my salvation? Well, let's unpack that a little. First, let's ask, what is meant by the goodness of God? Well, in the context of these verses, the goodness of God refers to his turning to the Gentiles with the offer of salvation. That's the goodness of God. One thing for sure Paul is saying is that God could just as well set aside any particular Gentile nation, people, tribe, or tongue. In other words, this verse might have a group application more than it has an individual one. Before you think this is a far-fetched explanation of a difficult text, consider the fact that we think this way regarding our own nation. Do we not believe that God has been extraordinarily good to the United States of America? Yes, we do. Do we not believe we are one nation under God, or at least should be, based on the founders? Yes, we do. And don't we as Christians within this nation also believe that without a revival, God will remove his favor from us if he hasn't done that already? Yeah, we believe all that. And so that's, I think, what this passage is about. It's that kind of a thinking. He's talking about the nation of Israel. Of course, there's individual Jews that comprise that nation. He's talking about the nations of the Gentiles. Of course, there's individual Gentiles. But when he says that they could be cast away, he's thinking in group terms. He's thinking in national terms the way we actually think about our own country, that we're, we're a, a wonderfully blessed nation. That doesn't mean everybody's saved, right? Of course not. And, and, but we understand that if we don't get it together, if we don't repent, if there's not revival, God's going to be through with the United States and we'll be, uh, we'll be cast away. That doesn't mean individual Christians will be cast away. It just means that our opportunity, the opportunity of the United States to really make a difference for God will be lost. It'll be gone. If history teaches of anything, it's that God raises up nations and then he tears them down. He raises them up for his purposes he gives them opportunity, and then he withdraws himself from them if they don't repent. The nation of uh, uh, the Assyrians, wicked, cruel people. God raised them up to judge his own people. But at, there was a time in which Jonah did go to them, and they got saved. The city of Nineveh repented. Every man, woman, and child became a Christian, as it were. Babylon, God raised up the Babylonians to judge and, and take his people into captivity and one of the greatest tracts ever written is right in the book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. He's out acting like a wolf, like an animal. You know, God throws this madness on him and he's out and then he comes to his senses and he, he publishes a tract and he sends it to all the regions of the world. And so we do think in these national terms. And so that's what I think is meant by these verses. They're still scary, 
They're just not individual scary. God's not saying that if you don't figure out what his goodness is, you're gonna lose your salvation. No, he's saying that, that he works in and with and through nations, and within those nations, some will believe and some will remain in their unbelief. I don't think these verses are about us individually persevering in the end, uh, to the end in order to maintain salvation. One more reason to think that. Paul said earlier, I speak to you Gentiles. That's verse 13. And so he tells us who his audience is. He's not really addressing the church in these verses. He's talking to the Gentile world at large about their privilege to hear and respond favorably to the gospel in light of God setting aside Israel. Uh, verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Israel will be grafted back in, for God is able to graft them in again. The condition for which Israel was broken off and cast away was unbelief. The condition for Israel to be grafted back in is to not continue in unbelief. This happens at the end of the great tribulation as the second coming of Jesus to earth occurs. Uh, the, in fact, the major point of the seven-year great tribulation is to save a remnant of Jews that will see the Lord at his return and look upon him whom they've pierced and receive him as their savior and God will keep his unconditional promises to the nation of Israel. And this is why the devil throughout history has tried to wipe out the Jews. Uh, one of the sub-themes, a pretty big sub-theme of human history is the devil's attempt to destroy the seed that was, that was promised in the Garden of Eden. God said in the Garden of Eden, Adam, you've sinned, but I'm going to come, uh, my, you know, and the seed of the woman is going to defeat the devil. And from that moment on, it was a throwdown. It was, you know, it was teeth and eyeballs as far as the devil was concerned. Uh, that's part of what's behind Cain murdering Abel is that the devil's trying to figure out who this seed is. Is it, it must be the good kid. It must be Abel. And so he gets Cain to kill Abel. And then later on, there's all, you know, there's all these other attempts to kill individuals. You get down to the time of Jesus and Satan has Herod kill all the babies. And on and on and on. You see this in Revelation 13 depicted in that graphic picture of, of the, the red dragon wanting to devour the child of the woman as it's born. Uh, and, and so that's, that's what's going on. But God, through the great tribulation, will turn the hearts of the Jews back to himself and the remnant that is uh, alive at the end, all of them will be saved. And so that's what it means here. They will be grafted back in. Verse 24, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Obviously, Paul is simply saying it's easier to graft back natural branches than wild ones. So the idea is here is obviously, hey, you Gentiles, you're getting saved. It's genuine. You have the fullness of God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. How much easier, in one sense, will it be when the time comes for God to graft back his own people into salvation, into that root? And so uh, I know we keep saying this over and over again, but it's like I said a few weeks ago, when you have an apple pie, you taste apple in every slice, right? 
and, and something, something weird is going on if you don't. I mean, that's why you buy apple if that's your kind of pie. And so this section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, we're just about through it. It's all about God's dealings with the nation of Israel. And Paul goes over and over and over and out of his way to say God is not through with Israel. And you and I may not need to hear that, but it's so interesting to me that not just throughout history and not just in church history, but even currently in the church today, there have always been those who continue to say God is through with Israel. And so what is repetitive for us and what you sit there and you think, okay, I've heard this, I believe this, you have contemporary Christians who do not believe this, who believe more like Martin Luther believes, maybe not with the anti-Semitism, but the idea that Israel, yes, they're a nation again, but so what? God is through with them. He's got no plan for them, even though in many cases the book of Romans is, is like their Bible. You know, this is their big thing, Romans, and this is where we get all of our theology from, but we completely ignore what Paul really says about the nation of Israel because it doesn't fit with what some of our uh, ancestors believed. Uh, and so... Uh, repetitive to us, but very critical, uh, especially in the time in which we live, when God is working so much through history uh, in these last days, bringing all these things together, setting the stage for the great tribulation once we're raptured out. Amen?